Welcome to Pro Corner. I'm your host, Austin Serhoff. This week I am so excited to release part one of my conversation with Elizabeth Beisel. This part focuses specifically on her path through pro swimming and her path from uh, her first Olympics that she made in 2008 as a high schooler, all the way through her last Olympics in 2016, where she was the most tenured Olympian on the U.S. women's Olympic team, and all of the learning that she did in the meantime, um, how her approach to motivation and training and her goals uh, evolved over time, and how her role on the team evolved over time. I mean, she was the youngest member of the 2008 Olympic team. I believe she was 15 years old at the time. And she was just soaking up everything and trying to do what everyone else was doing. And they gave her such a good experience, um, such valuable and positive mentorship that as she grew and she became such a veteran on the U.S. national team that by the time she got to 2016, she was actually elected by her peers to be a captain. And one thing that I really want everyone to keep an eye out for is how thoughtful Elizabeth was first of all, about her role, and second, how at 2016, she knew it was going to be her last Olympics, and she mentions in the podcast that she knew that she wasn't at her very best that she could have possibly been. And that's a tough headspace to deal with, especially when you've experienced the success that Elizabeth has experienced. I mean, she was a silver medalist in 2012 um, as a college kid and had big dreams for 16 of winning her first gold. In her last swim, she did not achieve that goal. She went slower than she did in 2012. And there was a really big moment that she describes in the episode that I want everyone to keep an eye out for of the decision she made about how she was going to carry herself for the the rest of the Olympics after her final swim, after experiencing the disappointment of realizing that she wasn't going to win a gold medal in her career. And the decision she made was a pretty amazing one. Um, It speaks to a lot about what it takes to be a pro and a truly great pro that can impact their teammates in a pretty spectacularly positive way. Uh, Elizabeth describes it better than I ever could, so I'm not going to go into specifics. Um, We're going to start the episode, but before we do that, quick note about my partnership with Fike Swim. So I'm an ambassador for Fike Swim. I designed a signature suit for the company, and it's a really cool design that I'm excited about. It reflects a lot of things I care about, about my own approach to professional swimming these days, and I think it looks pretty dang cool. A lot of people that have bought it so far have reported back that they feel like it's a pretty cool, unique design. So if you're interested at all, if you're a swimmer, head over to fikeswim.com. Go to my ambassador page where you can read up on how I design the suit, how I'm approaching swimming these days. I give a couple training tips, a couple things that I do in my own training. And if you don't like the suit, we have four other awesome ambassadors um, who have also designed their own suits. And if you don't want a suit, Fike Swim also has really cool products um, that I actually use in my own training. So regardless of what you're looking for, I would encourage you to head over to fikeswim.com, check out what they've got. And if you feel motivated to buy a suit, check out my ambassador page. Check out the suits that I designed. And beyond that, I'm done talking. 
let's get to Elizabeth. She's an amazing speaker, very thoughtful about her place in swimming, her place in the world, and I'm really excited for everyone to hear her perspective today. Let's do it. All right, here with Elizabeth Beisel, uh, three-time Olympian, uh, two-time medalist at the Olympics, and one of the captains of the 2016 Olympic team, uh, also the author of Silver Lining, a pretty awesome book, and from time to time, a broadcaster. Elizabeth, how's it going? What's up, Sarah? Thanks for having me. What's up, dude? Uh, you know, <laughs> chilling. Thought I'd just hop on this, thought I'd hop on this microphone, chat with a buddy today. Um, Let's start here. What are you up to these days? You're living in Rhode Island. Seems like a pretty, pretty dope apartment you got there. Yeah. So I'm in literally downtown Newport, which is so nice. Um, I walk everywhere. I hardly ever drive my car, which I love. Um, starting to get a little cold though. So that's going to become a problem. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I'm done swimming. So that's kind of done. Um, mm -hmm. And now I'm really dabbling in the broadcasting world, which I am thoroughly enjoying, which has been mm -hmm. really fun. And let's start there because, you know, someone like yourself that has this awesome career opportunity to kind of do broadcasting gigs and try out a lot of different stuff. I mean, you hiked Everest a couple of years ago, you've had TV appearances. What it's hard from the outside to understand what you see as your job or your career. So mm -hmm. do you think you could kind of crystallize that right now for us with what you think is, I guess, your day-to-day -day job, your career, what you're aiming for in your life? Yeah, I get, I wish I could personally crystallize what exactly I do, because I feel like I have a lot of hats on. Okay, so you uh, feel that way as well. It's not just oh, from the outside. hundred, yeah, okay, 100%. Okay. Like, I don't identify as, like, a broadcaster or a clinician or an author or whatever. Like, I'm just trying to do everything right mm -hmm. now, um, because I feel like for my entire life, I was a swimmer, and that was it, and that was the only thing that I had time for, and so now that that chapter is done, I can kind of try everything that I wanted to try while I was swimming, but couldn't um, because of time, time constraint training. I mean, it's, it's a lot. We all know what it's like to be a pro athlete, or maybe we don't, but we'll, we'll <laughs> dive into that. Um, but yeah, like right now I'm loving broadcasting. I'm loving that I'm able to do it in the swimming world, but without being a swimmer. So mm -hmm. I'm staying in the sport that I love um, without having to train six to eight hours a day, which I'm enjoying. Um, I'm still doing clinics here or there. I, I really haven't done much of those over the past year. Um, COVID obviously has not helped that. Um, I did a little bit of public speaking um, before COVID and, you know, released a book, was, was just doing a lot of stuff surrounding my swimming career and my accomplishments and stuff like that um, and kind of capitalizing on that because I feel like oftentimes we devote our life to a sport and we never really get to capitalize on it as mm -hmm. swimmers. Um, because we are a once in every four year sport in the eyes of the public. Um, so for me, I was like, you know what? I put a lot of work into this sport. I put a lot of time in, I'm going to reap the benefits of it to the biggest degree that I can. And I definitely think I've, I've started to hit that threshold and it was at the perfect time where I could really dive into broadcasting. So mm -hmm. that's kind of what I've been up to over the past couple of years. Yeah. I'm glad that, I'm glad that you see it that way as well. That it's like, I'm just wearing all these hats because, yeah. it, because I never got to, and now you get to do everything. Uh, I hadn't anticipated asking this question and we don't have to spend too much time on it because we're going to dig into the broadcasting later, but you brought up something really interesting that you want to capitalize on your accomplishments as a swimmer. It's almost like you put everything into swimming for this long, long time 
Mm-hmm. And then what you're doing now is almost like an IPO, right? Like yeah. you're, you're selling off and reaping the benefits of everything you did. The question I have comes from what something that Rowdy Gaines has said before, um, someone who I interviewed for an episode a while back. He said that the accomplishments in swimming and winning, winning, medal, nah, winning medals opens the door, but it's your job to walk through. And that's especially applicable for you because you are someone like Rowdy who has found all these opportunities for themselves in the entertainment industry and in the broadcasting business. But there are people who were your peers and who were similarly uh, accomplished in swimming that haven't walked through that door. So what do you feel like equipped you uh, to walk through that door and take the opportunities? And what did you see at the end of your career that kind of laid out the path for you? Yeah, I think for me, I was lucky enough to always know that I wanted to go into broadcasting and Mm -hmm. I was always comfortable being on camera, kind of like in the spotlight, I guess. Um, And so for me, once I was done swimming, I knew that I wanted to go on that path. I I just had no idea what that path looked like. And so for me, I was sustaining myself by doing clinics and public speaking gigs while working on my broadcasting life. And that, that pretty much entailed me interning at a local news station here in Rhode Island or doing work in Florida for free, commentating a swim meet for free and doing whatever it was to really get somewhat of a resume um, because I had no experience. And that, that's the thing, like when you leave a sport like swimming or you've devoted your entire life to, you don't have a resume. Um, it, nobody cares how fast you swim a 400 IM. Mm-hmm. They care about your real life experience. And so for me, I knew that I wanted to do this, but I needed to build a resume in order to get to where I wanted to go. Um, and so kind of on the back burner, that was there, but I was also trying to reap those benefits of being a professional swimmer and an Olympian and doing clinics, public speaking gigs, selling a book before my name was completely disappeared from the swimming world. You know, all of those things were things that I needed to do like immediately because that window of opportunity after you're done swimming to capitalize mm-hmm. is very small. It's mm-hmm. finite. It's done after the next Olympics comes around and the next crop of athletes come. So for me, I knew I had four and now five years because of COVID um, to really capitalize on that last Olympics that I went to. And then I was, the timeline was like, okay, once those next Olympics come around, I'm probably going to stop clinics and doing stuff like that and totally focus my energy on broadcasting. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, so what I'm hearing is it's not, it wasn't this glamorous thing that happened where just you became a broadcaster. You approached the next phase of your career like anyone would prepare for the next phase of their lives. I mean, what I'm hearing is it sounds so similar to someone who wants to, you know, be an executive at a business. They go to business school, they get internships at other businesses and they build up their resume. That's what you did as well. You had a plan, you executed it and you took the necessary steps and did the work. So I, I love that the path is very similar to the path that anyone else could walk to get to where they want to go in their life. Let's yeah. talk about, let's talk about how you, how you built up um, the swimming resume necessary to at least open the door for yourself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, through all of your awesome media appearances over the year, you told over the years, you told great stories, your book, silver linings told a lot of great stories of your swimming career. Uh, so I kind of want to focus on a specific time period, which is your time as a pro and really digging into specifics from that. So 2014, um, your last year as a Florida, as a Florida Gator collegiate swimmer, uh, you touch your hand on the wall at your last NCAs and you become a pro. 
So what do you remember about either the first feelings you had about that identity or maybe that first month where you started reckoning with what that meant for yourself? So for me, it was a complicated feeling um, leaving NCAAs because I was leaving the team. I was leaving teammates. Um, a lot of the people that had been in my class were not going to continue swimming. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of mourning the loss of a few teammates, few best friends. You know, I wasn't going to go to the pool with them anymore. We were going to go our separate ways. Um, but then on the flip side of that coin, I was so excited to become a professional athlete. Like since I was a little girl watching the Olympics on TV and getting Splash Magazine and the Speedo catalog, like I wanted to be on one of those speeder po speedo posters um, as an athlete sponsored by them. And so once I was done with NCAA as my senior year, um, it, it kind of, everything went very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really nice for me. So I never signed with an agent. Um, coach Troy, who is my college coach and also professional coach, um, he kind of served as my agent, which I really mm -hmm. appreciated because if any of you listening know Coach Troy, he is a very no BS guy. You know, he's straight <laughs> to the point. It's black and white. There's no question of a doubt of what he's thinking or what he's not thinking. Um, so I knew that I was going to get a really good deal with Coach Troy kind of acting as my agent. And mm -hmm. so Speedo um, approached me. And honestly, after that, that was, I didn't need to hear from any other suit company because Speedo for me was the only suit that I had worn my entire swimming career. Mm -hmm. And it was the brand that I had always kind of like idolized and wanted to be a part of. And so within, I would say three to four weeks of me touching the wall at NCAAs, I had a contract signed and completed with Speedo. And so they were my sponsor for, I signed a three-year contract with them and it was just amazing. They took such good care of me. Um, I, I never felt pressure. I, I just always felt supported and loved. And to this day, I'm still in that Speedo family. Um, as an ambassador, like I do stuff for them, media, I host stuff with the athletes. Like they've really included me within their brand, even post-swimming. And I, I cannot say enough good things about them and the support they've given me. Mm -hmm. So Speedo, there wasn't really much of a negotiation process where you were considering other brands. And it sounds like there was an emotional attachment to it because um, you it's, it sounds like you grew up wanting to be a Speedo athlete. Were there any athletes that you grew up idolizing that made you want to be a Speedo athlete or that you grew up wanting to be like when you became a pro? Because it was probably someone that you were on teams with or people you were on teams with because you were starting to do USA national teams when you were 12, 13, 14 years old. So who did you grow up idolizing that influenced the Speedo background and who you wanted to be like? Yeah, so I remember I had a Speedo poster on the back of my bedroom door growing up, and it was Natalie Coughlin, Amanda mm. Beard, um, and like a couple others. And I obviously ended up being on teams with Natalie Coughlin and Amanda Beard. And so it's just funny how full circle life really comes. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I remember my first, one of my first ever clinics was with Amanda Beard, and she was fresh off, I want to say Sydney Olympics, maybe Athens, like I can't specifically remember. Um, but she came and she talked to all the kids like I do now. And she was, she looked at all of us and she said, at least one of you in these stands are going to be an Olympian one day. Mm -hmm. And who cares if she meant it or not? I cared. I was like, I'm going to be that Olympian. Yes, ma'am. And four, eight years later, whatever it was, 
I made my first Olympic team in 08 and Amanda was on that team. And I remember that after you make an Olympic team at trials, they parade you around the pool deck in alphabetical order. And Amanda Beard is right before Elizabeth Beisel. Oh my gosh. I'm 15 years old. I'm standing behind Amanda Beard, who is like my idol. And I'm having this like epiphany. And it's like, oh, my life flashed before my eyes. And I was like, oh my God, Amanda Beard. Like, this is like where it started. Like, she literally gave me that nugget of hope to become an Olympian one day. And here I am on the same Olympic team with her. Like, what are the odds? Very slim. Um, So that was just like, and then obviously becoming a speedo athlete for me, it, it was just so cool to follow in the footsteps of people that I idolized and looked up to and considered my heroes. Um, because it now, you know, I'm not certainly on Amanda Beard's level or Natalie Coggins level, but there might be a little girl out there that had my poster from Speedo on her door um, and has gone to one of my clinics and will be at the Olympics one day. And it's, it's just cool that I had a platform to really inspire that next generation which is in fact the future of usa swimming um so that's it's it's something that's really humbling and i don't take lightly and it's just like a really cool feeling to have that link is something that's so strong about the swimming community because it's so insular and the people that are in it drill so deep into um the connections they have with each other and the expertise that they develop um just to add my own anecdote about that connection so you learned from amanda beard my first swim clinic ever uh, with the Fitter Faster Swim Tour, I actually did with you. And everything that I learned from you still influences me to this day that you were like, you know, don't get too hung up on everything you say. It's really important that they're just here today and it's an impactful experience. And so I've, that's helped me stay chill at those clinics. And then they, the kids really care about the interaction. Like the fact that they're there talking to us, that's more important than where they put their arm in freestyle, et cetera, et cetera. So that moment was so cool for me because I was like, wow, I, I guess I can do this thing too. Yeah. When was the moment that, and maybe it was before that Olympics, because that was a, a real moment of belonging that you had with Amanda Beard parading around the deck. What was the moment before that when you felt like you belonged and you felt like you could really grasp the Olympic dream you had for your first 08 Olympics? That, so that's hard because I think as every little swimmer grows up, you know, they want to go to the Olympics. Like I remember watching the 2000 Sydney Olympics in my living room and thinking, I need to do that one day. Like I want to be a swimmer at the Olympics for the United States. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's kind of like a pipe dream um, for a lot of us because the, the odds are so low. But I, you know, I think it didn't really hit me that it was an option um, until I was about 12 or 13 years old. So when I was 13, I made my first national team and that was for Pan Pacific championships in 2006. And that's when, you know, it was my first nationals ever. I remember my, before my race, my coach at the time, Chuck was like, you know, you can make Pan packs tonight. Like you can get top two in this turner back. And I was like, I was a junior nationals a year ago. Like I'm 13, mm-hmm. no chance. Am I making the national team tonight? Right. And sure enough, I get my hand on the wall second behind Margaret Holzer um and now I'm on the national team and that was when I was like wow this isn't just a pipe dream anymore this is something that's truly attainable and I can make happen um and then the sec the second like I guess 
moment where I thought it was actually going to happen was honestly when I touched the wall at trials and I made the team um, okay. behind Katie Hoff because that's that's kind of like you dream about it happening, but you always protect yourself. And I remember going into that corner I am at trials in 08, going in as top seed from prelims and being like, okay, you know, I can do something. I can make my Olympic dreams come true tonight. But, you know, like, if it doesn't happen, it's okay. I'm only 15. Like, I'll have another four years. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's always that, like, like protection mechanism that I had ready to engage just to make sure that if I didn't make it, I was going to be okay. And, like, I almost had an excuse. I know that sounds bad, but um, I, no, I know we, that once I touch. We all do it. We all do it. Right, <laughs> for, for sure. And, but, yeah, once I touched that wall and. I was second and I made the Olympic team and I was like, okay, just make sure you're not DQ'd, like make sure everything's okay. Like I, and I actually made it. Um, that was when I was like, wow, like I, I did it. And that's amazing. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a cool feeling, but it's always something that you want to believe you can do, but there's always like a little bit of doubt in it. Mm-hmm. So. So fast forward back to when you became a pro, we did a little jump around there, but I do want everyone to have context established for where you were at in 2014. It's the same meet setup in the 2014 nationals as it was in 2006 when you made your first Pan Packs. It's the world qualifiers, the Pan Pack qualifiers, the Pan Am qualifiers. What was different about the preparation for that meet as a pro? Did it feel different? Were the things that were the same? Were the things that were heightened or lessened um, once you were out of the collegiate system and out of school and now doing this thing on your own? Yeah, it's, I was lucky enough to go pro at a place where there was already a post-grad program Mm -hmm. there. So for me, swimming at University of Florida, I would often train while still in college with the post-grads. And at that time it was, like Ryan Lochte, Connor Dwyer and Peter Vanderkay had already left. Um, but we had like an amazing pro group. And so for me, the transition from college to pro training wise, wasn't that difficult. Um, everything was still very similar and familiar. The one thing that I really struggled with was the sense of being a part of a team. Mm-hmm. And it went all of a sudden from I'm doing this for the team. I'm doing this for university of Florida and my best friends and my coach all of a sudden you're stripped of all that. And you're like, it doesn't matter how I do. The only person that it matters to how I do is me and my sponsors. And that's, that's kind of like a big pill to swallow um, because it's so much easier to compete for something that's bigger than yourself. And now all of a sudden it's just me in my own lane, like taking care of myself. Um, and that, that, that was a hard adjustment because I'm somebody that I feed off of people's energy. I love being on a team. I'm an extrovert. And now all of a sudden I kind of like go to the swimming and it's, it's all up to me. I'm alone. And if I make the team, yay, if I don't, doesn't matter. So mm-hmm. I think the hardest adjustment for me was knowing I wasn't really a part of the team anymore. And I didn't have that team camaraderie um it's it's just different and I actually did great that summer in 2014 that was my first like big meet as a professional athlete I crushed Mm -hmm. it at nationals I crushed it at Pampac and then that fall once the college season started was when I really started to struggle because I would see the college team practicing and 
going to meets and like doing all the things that I love to do. And I was kind of like stuck at home training alone Mm -hmm. when, and not alone, but it's certainly not the same. And so that, that was one thing that I really struggled with um, that fall of being a pro athlete. Well, it was a very male dominated post-grad group from what you're describing right now, especially your specific training partners being Connor Dwyer and Ryan Lochte. Um, How did you adapt yourself to um, being a part of that post-grad group and the training that they did? Because just because, just because they're guys and they, and they're 400 IM times would be faster than yours on paper, you were still keeping up with them in practice. I mean, you're someone who's one of the best trainers in the world. Um, but how did you adapt yourself to being in that group? Was it an adjustment for you um, with like the culture of a post-grad group or um, how you kind of carried yourself in your day-to-day life? And how did the people in the group help you with that transition? Yeah, the, the culture was definitely different because when you become a pro athlete, again, like I said, it's all about yourself. So there's no repercussions if you don't show up to practice on time or mm-hmm. if you skip practice. Like Coach Troy was, was basically like, hey, I'm not going to force you to be here. You know, if you want to be here, be here. But if you don't, you're not going to get a call from me telling you that you missed practice and that you shouldn't do that again. So you're, you're really held accountable for everything that you do. And for me, I am somebody mentally that needs to be at every practice. I need to do every yard. I need to leave on time for everything to have the confidence at the end of the season. And a lot of the guys that I was training with were a lot more lax in that sense, where they kind of roll up maybe a little bit late or, you know, they, they weren't. And it's not even that they weren't taking it as seriously as me. I think I was just like extra precautionary in terms of that stuff. And so, but for me, I was always somebody that really, I think trained with the guys more often than I did the girls. And so for me, even in college, um, you know, we would separate the pool sometimes for a men's and women's set and nine times out of 10, I'd be in the men's interval. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the boys were always like home for me. Like I love training with them. They always welcome me with open arms. Um, but it was really hard when it was just me and all of these guys. And it was frustrating because I knew that I was doing really well in practice. Like I'm training with Pierre Vanderkay, Connor Dwyer, Ryan Lochte, Ben Hassan, like all of these legendary names mm-hmm. and me. And I know I'm doing great because I'm keeping up, but I'm never winning anything. I never have like that confidence boost of like crushing a set or beating somebody that I can really like compare myself to so I think that was hard for me for sure not Mm -hmm. really having women to train with um in that post-grad group but I think those guys were like my big brothers and they were always building me up and coach Troy was obviously always building me up but there were some brutal sets that I would be legitimately pissed about being a part of because the intervals were not I remember specifically we're outside in our 50 meter pool it was me and all the boys no other girls and Coach Troy's like, all right, we're going to do a 3K freestyle set, all 110 base, out like 50 meters. And dude, Sir Hoff, I'm not kidding. It was like 10 100s on 110, then three threes on 330, then four twos on 220. Like, and Coach Troy was like, and by the way, I expect you to make all of it. And I was like, <laughs> this is stupid. Like, what? Like, why are you not giving me a different interval than Connor Dwyer, who is like our Olympic trainer freestyler, Ryan yeah. Martin, like, How? Why? Like, and and I just remember him like 
yelling at me for like maybe like coming too close to missing an interval and I was like what what's happening like, like I was just like so sad I ended up making the entire set which I was like now one of my proudest moments mm-hmm. um but it was little things like that where I was really expected to step up to the plate and do things that aren't like that you would expect the men to do but maybe not the women um that I oftentimes saw as a challenge that I was willing to rise to but oftentimes as well I'd be like I'm not doing that like no so it was it was like give and take but honestly loved my time training with the guys um they pushed me to a level that I would have never been able to be pushed without them and so grateful for all that time I was able to spend with them what was that dynamic like in practice were you guys talking smack was it always positive was it always smack was it a combination of those things because I imagine like you know, Ryan seems like a very easygoing guy on the pool deck when he gets to the meet, but I also, I've always theorized that strategy to kind of put people at ease before he crushes them. Uh, but Connor is a very intense guy and I don't know much about Peter Vanderkay, but I've heard legends about how hard he works. So what's the social dynamic like in a train, in that training group, uh, when you guys are actually swimming, are people pumping each other up? Were you the vocal alpha of the group? Like, how did that go? Yeah, so Ryan and I were not allowed to share a lane together because we would <laughs> goof off too much. Like, literally, <laughs> sometimes Ryan and I would, like, try to sneak our mesh bags behind the same lane and, like, see if we could get away with the whole practice without Coach Troy noticing. Every time before warm-up was over, Troy was like, Tyler, Ryan, separate. Like, now. Because we, I mean, and that's, like, Ryan and I together. Like, we had so much fun. and. We would, if it were a main set, like we would get it done. Like we were not goofing off in a main set, but it was kind of everything else where Ryan and I just would like to goof around and that was fine. And then Connor, Connor was so good at training. He was unreal. He, Connor and PBK were kind of like our, like our sturdy rods. Like they would keep all of us honest. PBK never said a word. He never complained. He was the hardest worker that I've ever trained with in my life. I mm-hmm. would see Peter Vanderkay do things that I've never seen anybody do. And I've, I've seen a lot of amazing things in practice. PBK blew me away every single practice. Connor Dwyer as well. And it was amazing for me to be able to train with that group. And, I, and it's so sad because I didn't realize it at the time, but being able to watch those three men go head to head to head in a freestyle set all next to each other, it's like, those are the three best freestyles and freestylers in the world and the mm-hmm. country for sure. Yeah. Um, and so to be able to train with that every single day and, and there was never any animosity in practice, you know, PBK won one day and Connor won another day and Ryan won another day. There was never any hard feelings. Like the, everything was always positive. Um, and especially towards me, like, cause I would get frustrated sometimes with the intervals and stuff. And yeah, like they would, all three of those guys would be like, guys, well, you've got this, like, don't worry about it. Like, this is going to make you better. Um, and so it was just like, honestly, the best training environment I could have asked for. And mm-hmm. those guys are big brothers to me. And that it's such a cool thing to have them, um, cheering for you every single day in practice. I've talked to a lot of people on this podcast that, struggled with their first year at least of training with their old college teams as pros because they kind of were in the same training group doing the same stuff with the college swimmers and didn't really have a structure in place for them once they left but you're someone 
you've been with the people that are pro, even though you're, even though you're younger and you're in college for 10 years at this point, your peers are people who have already been pros and the Florida college group is something that was, or sorry, the Florida pro group was something that was fully fleshed out that was ready for you when you got there. And you were also doing some time with them, even as a, as a college student. So I like hearing success stories of people moving up in, into the post-grad group of their college teams. It sounds like, it sounds like it was a pretty amazing environment. Uh, let's pivot to your day-to-day life outside the pool. One of the things that I'm fascinated by is how people like yourself make pro swimming a job. So you had the speedo contract. It sounds like you were bored in your apartment a lot, which that's, I mean, that's a lot of, that's the life of yep. a lot of pro swimmers. Yep. not super glamorous, even for the Olympians, because a lot of time you're sleeping, eating, taking ice baths, et cetera. So what else were you doing to put together your day-to-day life and your income as, as a professional swimmer? Yeah. So while I was pro, I obviously had Speedo, which was my main source of support financially. Um, But I started to dabble in clinics and I ended up absolutely loving clinics. Like there's nothing more feel good than going to a clinic. I remember my first one. And like you said, Sir Hoff, like you were so nervous. And also, like he said, I was with Sir Hoff for his first clinic. And by the way, he did amazing. Um, But you did but to to be able to walk into a room and change a kid's life or give a kid hope to like be what they want to be um there's you can't like put a price on that and to just have fun with the kids and work with them and really just give back to the sport that gave you so much that was a huge huge plus to me going pro was being able to experience that. And it made me fall back in love with the sport because being around kids that are so enthusiastic about what they do. And in this case, swimming, there were so many times, whether I was in college or pro that I would just hate swimming. I would not want to swim. I would not want to go to practice. I wouldn't want to race. And then I'd go to a clinic and these kids would just be so happy to swim, like so happy to be in the water with me. And it would bring me back to the roots of why I started to swim. And it's so cliche, but just spending a couple hours with those kids would get me through like a couple months of training. And I would look forward to every clinic that I did. And they were, they were very sparse because no way Coach Troy was letting me travel and do a clinic every weekend. Mm-hmm. You know, like we had practice and stuff, but whenever I could fit it in, especially if the clinic was in Florida and within driving distance, I would go and it's such a great way to kind of start that transition outside of the competitive swimming world, but, but without like really breaking your back doing it. And I'm so glad that I started doing those clinics while I was still swimming because that really made my transition a little bit more seamless once I was done with competitive swimming. And I, you know, I kind of already knew the ropes of how to do a clinic, you know, then I could really hone in on that skill that I had learned. Um, and make that part of my real big income generator um, once my speedo contract was over. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing things in your life where you were kind of crossing over the one phase with the other and setting yourself up. Um, a lot of planning that goes into leading a glamorous life, like being a pro swimmer and a broadcaster. Um, back to swimming, because it sounds like what you put together was the speedo, the clinics. Mm-hmm. Day-to-day life was pretty boring. 
<laughs> oh yeah, we didn't even get into that. Yeah, day to day life was. Yeah, what were you up boring. to? How's Gainesville? Like, well, and that's the thing too. You know, living in Gainesville, um, it's a fantastic college town. Like, if you're going to class every day, like you're walking on this beautiful, massive campus, and then all of a sudden you're done with classes, you graduate, and it's just swimming. Mm-hmm. And sort of what you said was my life. I would wake up, have some coffee, go to practice, go lift weight eat some lunch, take a nap, go back to practice, do some dry land, eat some dinner and then go to bed. Like, and, and that's honestly the life of a pro swimmer. And that's kind of just, you don't have time. You don't have energy for anything else. Even if you did have time, you don't have the energy. So yeah, I'm going to chill and watch Netflix every night. And that's how I'm going to be the best swimmer in the world. (laughs) That's kind of what everybody does as a pro swimmer. Um, there's not really a lot of time for anything else. Yeah. Um, pivoting back to swimming, what were, how did you focus your goals going into 2016? Because did you know that it was going to be your last year before we move on? Yeah, I knew 16 was definitely going to be my last year. Okay. So how did that frame your goals going into it? And what were you talking to coach Troy about, uh, as you got ready for the 16 Olympic trials? Yeah, for, so the entire year leading up to 16 I had been injured um so the fall of 15 through kind of like March of 16 so honestly the entire time I was just focused on getting healthy and giving myself the best shot to make the Olympic team Mm -hmm. um and there were so many times within that six to eight month period where I would go into coach Troy's office and be like Troy I can't do this anymore like I quit like why am I not getting better why am I not getting faster I'm showing up every day. I'm doing my PT. Um, Like I'm rehabbing as best as I can, but it's not, nothing's adding up right now. And that's the thing. Sometimes in swimming and in sports, two plus two does not always get to four. And Mm. that's kind of the harsh reality of it. But for me, I was going to practice. I was doing everything right, but I was swimming slower than I had ever swam in my life. And so leading up to those 16 trials and Olympics, knowing that it was going to be my last Olympic Games, um, there was added pressure and I wasn't in the right mindset because I was, one, it's, it's hard after you've been to two Olympics and you're reaching for your third because once you have those two Olympics under your belt, you're expected to make the third. Mm. So there's a, there's a level of pressure and expectation on my shoulders that I was feeling very heavily. Yeah. Um, I was injured. So that was something that was really kind of always in the back of my mind. Like, will I be okay for trials? Will I be okay for the Olympics? Um, And then just like knowing, and this is sad, but like knowing that my best swimming was behind me and Mm -hmm. had been for a good four years Mm -hmm. um, and kind of just like hanging on by a thread and hoping that it would all work out come trial. So needless to say, my mindset was not superb going into the 16 summer. But I remember going to a meet in May about a month before trial and it was in Atlanta at Georgia tech. And it was just some random meet like the Atlanta classic or something. Um, and I ended up going a four thirty three in my former I am out of nowhere, not mm-hmm. rested, not shaped my fastest in season four. I am by four seconds ever. And so that was kind of like the boost that I needed heading into trials in the Olympics, because I knew yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to break 4.30, but I'm still as good as I've ever been. And sometimes that's good enough. 
so for me, that meet was huge in terms of my confidence heading into trials. Um, and then the week before trials, I ended up getting a stomach virus in the hospital for a few nights that obviously took my confidence back down. Mm-hmm. So that entire summer of 16 was just an absolute roller coaster. Um, and so the fact that I did as well as I did, um, I, I, I now look back on it and I'm very proud at the mm-hmm. moment I was not, but hindsight's always 2020. So, yeah. And, um, one of the things that changed for you, you said that there was an expectation to make the Olympic team. And that came from, you know, oh, wait, you're the plucky newcomer. It's like a, it's an amazing surprise. You make the, the Olympic team. And then, um, 2012, you're in the prime of your collegiate career. It's how far that kid, how high can she take it? And then by 16, it's like, yeah. well, you know, make it. Yeah. So yeah, like- how did that change your dynamic within the national team? Cause at this point, you are a 10 year veteran of the USA national team and you have strong relationship with everyone because you're someone that really values the relationships you get from swimming. You're training at a site like Florida where um, the, some of the best swimmers in the world are training with you. So you're close with a lot of people on the team and there's this new generation coming in behind you. So how did that change your approach outside the pool in 2016 in Rio and how, how it changed, um, I guess, your role on the Olympic team at that point? Yeah, so my role from 08 to 16 couldn't have been more different. And mm-hmm. I think that's cool because it's just like the evolution of my career and me as a person. So in 08, I'm like bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, deer in headlights type of athlete you know I'm trying to do everything that Michael does and what Natalie does um and kind of based off of trial and error figuring out what works best for me and Mm -hmm. just happy to be there can't believe it I'm 15 on the Olympic team how great is this nothing to lose and then you go to 16 where I am the most tenured veteran of that team um aside from Michael and Ryan and now I'm expected to show these youngsters like Kathleen Baker and these first time Olympians, you know, what it's like to be an Olympian. And, you know, there were, there were so many things that I wished I had known at my first Olympics and that somebody, I wished somebody had told me. Mm-hmm. And I remember specifically telling myself that back in 08, like if you're ever in a position, Elizabeth, to help somebody at their first Olympics or their first national team, take them under your wing and make them feel like they belong and make them feel like they know what they're doing. Because those were two things that I struggled with as a young athlete on the national team and that I never felt like I belonged. And that might be because I was so young. Um, And two, I literally never knew what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like I didn't know it was white cap in the morning, black cap at night. I didn't know certain things were certain ways. You know, these are things that I wish I had been told. And so at those 16 games, when I make it, I, I realize that my role is no longer winning the medals and being kind of like a star name on the team. Mm-hmm. My role has now turned into being the person that helps those future stars feel comfortable, show them the ropes, make that experience as easy and as fun and as successful as possible. And so for me being captain of those 16 games really saved me because personally, I was not pumped about how I did. I got like fifth, maybe I think sixth in the 400 I am in 2016, um, which in hindsight is awesome. I would still be fifth in the world again at something, but whatever. Yeah. Um, and so 
for me, I'm done night one of those 16 games. Where I am is day one. If you only been out of swimming, I'm done. And so now I have seven more days left of these Olympics. And I remember after my race, you know, Maya wins the silver, which I'm pumped for her about, like incredible. Um, but personally, I'm so sad because I had always wanted an Olympic gold medal. I wanted to at least get on the medal stand. I didn't. And I kind of had an ultimatum in my head where I was like, all right, Elizabeth, you're going to either cry over how you did, which you cannot change, by the way, mm-hmm. for the next seven days and hate your last Olympic experience, or you can rise to the occasion and be the leader that you were elected to be by your peers, by your teammates, and help everybody else have their dream Olympics. And I obviously chose the latter because I went back to what little Elizabeth would have wanted me to do. And she would have wanted somebody to really guide her through those Olympics. And so I did that for Kathleen Baker, for so many people that were like, even Lily King, she's like, this is my first Olympics. I don't know what the heck's going on. Like, can you help me? And yeah. so, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you. And for me, that was really my saving grace was being kind of everybody's rock um, in those Olympics, whether it was me warming down with them after a bad race or me helping them put on their suit before their final or walking them to the ready room being the person they saw in the stands with the flag when they turned around. Like, I didn't care. I was just going to do all of it because I had nothing else to do. And mm-hmm. I did not want to loathe my last Olympics, um, which I very well could have done. But yeah, it was a huge, um, huge change or huge role change from 08 to 16, for sure. You touched lightly on a couple people that you helped guide and a couple ways that you might have helped guide them. But do you have any specific stories where you were basically helping young Beisel in your mind by helping out one of your teammates on that 16 team? So many times. Oh my gosh. So I keep saying Kathleen Baker because she's the glaring example in front of my mind. So before her 100 back final, she was she was the most nervous I've ever seen anybody to be honest. And she was like, Faisal, like, I need you to literally be by my side tonight. And I was like, girl, you got it. Whatever it is, I'm there for you. So we like go to, I go to the locker room with her. I help her put on her suit. I've got like music playing. I'm being goofy Faisal, like trying to lighten the mood. I'm like, Baker, you're literally going into the final of the Olympics, top seed or maybe second seed. I can't remember. Like you've already done something incredible. Like Mm -hmm. this is not going to be your last Olympics. So let's just like have some fun. Let's do it. Let's see what you can do tonight. Um, And just like walking her to the ready room and watching her get, like I have the chills right now, like watching her get. And I'm getting jacked up just hearing this. Silver medal. um, And like, and the most rewarding part. and, And it's not all about me at all. But knowing that after that race, she comes up to me and thanks me for helping her. Like that's, that means more to me than anything. You know, knowing that I helped somebody do and have their best race and, and their most prized, you know, successful accomplishment. Like that's, that's a really cool feeling to have. And then Schmitty, I could talk about for literal days because I think I've walked Schmitty to every ready room she's ever been in at the Olympics. And she's walked me to every one of mine. And that's just like, she's that calming presence for me and I'm that calming presence for her. And so for me to kind of grow up through the Olympic games with Schmitty, um, she, she was like a huge part of who I became and why we were both successful at the Olympics. And so for her, just like singing in a hairbrush before our Olympic finals, that's like what did it for us. And 
just little things like that that you don't see behind the scenes that are truly like the big difference makers, um, I think are my most prized memories of the Olympics and the relationships that I have with people on that team. Did you get to have a quiet moment with Allison when the meet was over for both of you to kind of look back over everything and appreciate the time you guys had spent together? Yeah, and it was crazy because in 16, we were both done swimming. Like right, that, I should, that was, I should preface, Allison also thought she was done at the time too, right? right. Yeah. Yeah, so Schmitty was done after 16. Like that was it. Um, and I, I remember like she wins her gold medal on the relay and we were roommates obviously and so we come home that night obviously and gotta a, be. yeah obviously i mean who else would i room with yeah. um, <laughs> um but it was like you know going back to that room and you know she just won like her eighth medal um or ninth medal and being like wow it's over you know like it kind of flashed before our eyes um and it's sad but I think at the time we were mentally both done with the sport and we were ready to move on and we were looking forward to what was next. And, you know, for Schmitty, that break away from the pool was probably the best thing that had ever happened to her because now she's back in that sport swimming better than she's ever swam in her life. And, yeah. and for, you know, when she is an older athlete in the sport of swimming, you know, for her to just keep getting faster and faster, like, it's a true testament to her love for the sport and her commitment and just her entire like feelings about the sport. And so it's crazy to think about 2016, which was four years ago and how we were both over it. You know, we were so ready to move on and now I'm loving the sport more than I've ever loved, you know, I'm not swimming, but um, I'm enjoying it more than I ever have. And same with Schmitty. Um, it's really cool because I feel like we finally both found our way. And that's a really special thing, especially when you get to see your best friend thriving, like watching her at ISL. I'm like proud mom of, okay. Yeah, and I, I think Schmidt's time away from the sport literally gave her the clarity and you know the, the time away that she needed and it made her appreciate swimming and it made her fall back in love with the sport. And I think that, mm -hmm. you know, that's priceless because what breaks my heart most and I know so many people, I know too many people like this who they leave the sport of swimming on bad terms and they cannot look at a pool. They can't put on a suit, cap goggles. They won't even think about swimming until they're healed. And oftentimes that's like a decade. And that's really sad because we started swimming because we loved it. We were having fun. Like it's what we love to do. And I think for Schmitty to take that time away really instilled that feeling of love and happiness that she felt and had for the sport. And now she's back swimming faster than she's ever swam before. And she's not getting any younger, you know, mm -hmm. like that's the most impressive part about it to me is that she is considered an older athlete in our sport, but she's excelling and she's racing more than she's ever had. She, she ever has. And, you know, I put on IFL and I'm cheering for her like a crazy person. Like it's just so amazing for me to be able to watch her do that. And, it's, it's just like to see somebody fall back in love with the sport that, you know, I personally love and I'm mm -hmm. loving more than I ever have. Um, it, it just, it, it's that, it's that feel good warmth in your heart. And I want nothing but happiness and success for Schmitty. And I don't care what that looks like as long as she has it and she feels good about it. That's all that matters. 
Yeah, I, I was surprised in such a happy way when she came back too, because I got to train with her for two years and, you know, she was ready to retire in 16, um, like I did. And I'm someone also who time away from the sport, you know, allowed me to come back and be happy with um, what I'm doing. There was an event change that helped me love the sport again. You kind of touched briefly on how you love the sport of swimming yourself. Mm -hmm. So before we dig into the broadcasting and your specific relationship with swimming day to day, what is your emotional and your spiritual and your big picture relationship with swimming now that you are outside of the sport with a couple years of hindsight? Yeah, I think my relationship with the sport is the best it's ever been. Mm-hmm. Um, I think time away for anybody and anything is a fantastic thing because it gives you perspective. Um, it makes you appreciate what you did and what you had. Um, and for me, you know, when I get an opportunity to swim, even if it's just like going up to Alberta and swimming with Chuck at Bluefish, like I'm so excited to get in the water and I don't swim often. Like this is like a once, maybe a month type of thing in the summer. I swim a ton at the beach in open water, but mm-hmm. for me to be able to have that loving relationship with it, because it has been a bad relationship at times. I've hated mm-hmm. swimming for sure. And I think we've all hated swimming at some point. But for me to be at the place that I am now with the sport and, you know, going to swim meets, you know, the U.S. Open a couple weeks ago and being able to watch the swimmers and feel as though I miss it, but without feeling the need to be there, to be swimming is the most calming, serene feeling ever. Like I recognize, wow, I really miss this sport. Like I miss that feeling getting up behind the blocks. I miss the ready room. I miss warming up and chatting with my friends on the deck but but I'm also okay where I am and I and I don't need to do that anymore and so I am at such a good place where I used to I used to watch Former Diane after I first retired and then like and be like oh I need to like I need to get back in the water like I I really need to be there now I watch a Former Diane and I'm like wow I, one I can't believe I used to do that like yeah oh and two like I love this sport, but I'm okay not doing it. And I think that's, I have reached like what I would have hoped for myself 10, 20 years ago. And that, that makes me really happy and at peace. Yeah. Uh, by the way, you're nuts for looking at a 400 I am and ever wanted to go back even at the beginning. I know. <laughs> like, wait, is something wrong with me? Uh, yeah. like- <laughs> As someone who vomited at least 30 times after 400 IMs, I was quick to hightail on out of it. Not great. Yeah. But I do wonder... I I actually do want to touch on one more part of the swimming Um, because the 400 IM specifically, man, it's like such a mentally tough thing for most people to wrap their heads around because it is a a physically taxing event in its own category compared to say the mile, which is the longest event or the 200 free, which people say might hurt the most. Right. Right. So did that come from, um, like, were you almost over-prepared for the 49 with the training you had growing up? And I should preface by saying, I've heard stories, not just of the training you guys did, but Chuck Batchelor comes from the school of Dick Schulberg, who trained my mom when she was at Germantown back in the 80s. And she was telling me stories of, you know, a 16,000 of 400 IMs she had to do and a 5,000 butterfly that Dick made her do. But she loved the 400 IM on the outside because it's like, wow, right. it's just a 400 IM, like whatever. So did you draw from did you draw from that energy, that feeling that like, dude, I've done all of this nutso stuff. The 400 IM really isn't that big a deal on top of, you know, the accolades that the event would bring you. 
Right. The training for me was hands down what I needed to step up on the blocks and swim a confident corner I am. Because if I knew I hadn't done the training and I hadn't put in as much work as I could have, it would never be a good race for me, especially not the corner I am because I believed in the work that I was doing. Like I was fully committed to do those 16,000 IMs that your mom did. Like we did those all the time, like the 10,000 race, the 16 KIM, the 400 IM repeats every practice. Like I, I, and this is like sick and I'm not a masochist, but like I loved doing that because I took pride in being strong enough and mentally tough enough to do sets like that. Mm -hmm. And that's what made me one of the best corner diameters in the was knowing that I am tougher than anybody that I'm racing in these eight lanes, because I know for a fact, nobody's done the work that I've done. Mm -hmm. And for me, I'm not saying this for everybody, but for me to swim a really good corner I am, I needed to feel that. And so that corner I am, I never looked at it as a daunting event. I, it was a challenge always, but I took pride in being a corner diameter and knowing that that was one of the hardest events and I don't care. I'm going to crush it every single time. And that was kind of just like the strong bullheaded Elizabeth that came out of me that the corner I am brought out in me. Um, but I just, I was like so prideful that I was a corner diameter and people would complain about it. And I'd be like, yeah, sucks for you. I actually love it. Maybe I am a masochist. I don't know. You were probably, I'm not going to say specific girls' names that would have been next to you because I don't want to like call out someone, but like someone like myself, maybe at the same event profile as myself, someone who maybe did 200 IMs and 200 freestyles and 200 backstrokes, and then also did the 400 IM. You could look at girls with those event profiles and be like, tourist. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> you, th you think you're a porter I ever <laughs> call up Chuck Bachelor, He'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, you'll know. Come up to Bluefish for a week and you'll know if you're a 4IM or not. Yeah I, yeah. I I knew that I was not long for the 4IM when I heard what the true 4IMers were doing day to day like yourself. Yeah. So. All right. That's the show. If you enjoyed that, part two of my conversation with Elizabeth Beisel will be out next week where we talk more about things that she's doing beyond her swimming career and all of the ways that, as she briefly touched on in this episode, how she is taking everything that she achieved in swimming and using it to build a really cool life for herself post-swimming in the world of broadcasting and other ventures. For all updates about Pro Corner episodes, uh, head over to Instagram and follow at Pro Corner Podcast. My personal page is at Austin Serhoff. Um, and if you have any questions, any feedback, first of all, rate review, rate, review and subscribe wherever you are listening on this podcast service. Um, you can also email me directly at austin at procornerpodcast.com if you want to talk about what you liked, what you didn't like, ways the podcast can improve, any thoughts that pass into your mind, whether it's listening to this episode or if you want to talk about, you know, swim training, I'm an active professional swimmer and you are a swimmer and you want to talk about training, or if you just want to talk about anything that popped into your head from any Pro Corner episodes um, that you want me to discuss, address, answer questions about, hit me up. I'll be at the other end. Again, it's austin at procornerpodcast.com. Thanks so much for stopping by.